Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Fellowship's online sermons. Join us each week as we dig into the truths of God's Word. You can find our sermons online at cbf.us sermons. We'd love to have you join us for our worship service on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at our campus at 7351 Warden Road, Sherwood, Arkansas. Now, let's listen to this week's sermon. Good to see you here today, and if you would, take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of John. John, chapter 21, the last chapter. After almost a year and a half in the Gospel of John, we are coming to the end. hope that uh, you gain some insight into the Word of God by looking through this wonderful book. I'll give you some information in the next week or so about what we'll look at next. But we will spend a couple of weeks here in John chapter 21. John chapter 21 is an interesting chapter because it almost seems like, I don't know, it it seemed like it ended very well at the end of chapter 20. If you look at the last couple of verses of the previous chapter, it says, "...now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples." which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That seems like a very good summation of a book. This is why I wrote the book. This is the point. Everything in it leads to this, that you would have life in his name. And then we go immediately into chapter 21. And chapter 21 really serves in many ways like an epilogue to the book. You look at the opening of the Gospel of John, the first 18 verses, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, it's kind of like the prologue. It gives you the background that Jesus, you know, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And talks about before, you know, everything came into being through Him. He was the light, He was the life. His own didn't receive Him. It kind of sets you up for this book so that right after that, we just jump right into the life of John the Baptist and Jesus comes along. And so the opening prepares us for that. And in much the same way, chapter 21 serves as kind of a, an ending to what happened in chapter 20. Jesus rose from the dead, He visited Mary Magdalene, the disciples, and Thomas gives them their instructions, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. He even sums it up with, with Tom, or John, or Thomas, sorry, doubting Thomas there. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet believed. That John wrote this book for those that would not see Jesus, that they would believe. And then chapter 21 kind of goes, and this is how that works. If you want to know how, you know, in practical sense, how it takes place, well, chapter 21 kind of reveals that. What I find interesting about chapter 21 is that it has become, for many people, one of the most loved chapters of the book of John. Back in the 1800s, there was a pastor by the name of William Krumacher who said he had 14 different sermons on this chapter. And he said of John chapter 21, it is a picture of the Christian life, the life of the church with its contrasts and changes. It has festive joy and hard work. It has poverty and abundance, failure and success, humility and loftiness, activity and rest, losing and then finding the Lord, longing for Him and rejoicing in His presence. 
In other words, everything that's in the Christian life we see in John chapter 21. We see the life that is powered by the Holy Spirit, powered by Jesus Christ working through us. You can just imagine if you were driving down the road today and there was somebody on the side of the road pushing their car up a hill and struggling because, you know, a car weighs a lot and it's hard to push up a hill. So you say, well, I'll help them. You get out and you try and help them and somebody else comes along and there's three or four of you trying to push the car up the hill, but you just can't seem to do it. So finally, somebody asks the owner of the car, what happened? I mean, did you run out of gas? Did the engine break down? What's going on? And he were to look back at you and say, well, nothing's wrong with the engine. It works perfectly fine. I just feel like pushing it. You would think he's crazy, but how many Christians try and live the successful, fruitful Christian life without Jesus? The opening passage that we're going to look at, we're going to look at the first 14 verses. It's a story about fishing, which I know fishing is near and dear to the heart of many of you. Some of you probably not so much. It's about not catching any fish, which is also something that a lot of you may have in common with the disciples. But it's also about how Jesus steps into this situation. It, yeah, it's a story about fish and catching a lot of fish. But the spiritual truth right after here in chapter 21 of showing everybody that reads this and sees this, listen, you want to know what the Christian life is like? The key to it is, look at this story about fish. And so we're going to look at this today and look at some truths out of it for these disciples as they begin to live the life that God called them to after Jesus rose from the dead and see how it applies to us today. So in the honor of God's word, would you stand? I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. We're going to go to verse 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That is the Sea of Galilee. That's just the Roman name of it. He revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, you'll find some. So they cast it. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other, other disciples came into the boat, or came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish... This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Lord, I thank you for this brief account that we have this morning that you recorded for us. I pray that we learn from it and are changed by it. In your name I pray, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So this opening few verses is kind of bookend by that Jesus revealed himself. 
verse 14, this was the third time that he revealed himself. Often it's translated manifested. There's more to it than just Jesus shows up and appears. Jesus is revealing something about who he is, how he is to be a part of the disciples' life and their existence. And so we have this account recorded. It's the third appearing after the, uh, the first night when he appeared in the room with the disciples and then the second time with Thomas, he appears to them. What we see is John sets it up in the first three verses. He gives us the, the, the futility of human effort alone. The futility of human effort alone. Now, a lot of people read a lot into the details of this passage. Why does he not name two of the disciples? Why does he have them in the order that he has them? Is there any significance about 153? What about the nets not being torn? Now, you can get into a lot of those details, although I think most of them are here just simply to provide veracity of the story that it really happened. I mean, 153 fish, every fisherman knows. You catch some, you're going to tally them up. But opening here, it's just there in, in Galilee. They've left Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. They've traveled to Galilee. Jesus has told them about this, told them to do this. And there comes a point where Peter, and it doesn't really get into the reasons here, decides to go fishing. I am going fishing. It's like, you know, they're all sitting around just doo-doo-doo-doo, and he's like, I'm going fishing. Let's go. So he gets up to go fishing, and some of the, the other seven or six disciples there, they go, we will go with you. They go out, and they don't catch anything. Now, most commentators or people that have studied this passage, they fall into one of two camps about what Peter and the disciples do here. The first camp is that they're not really doing anything deliberately wrong. They're not trying to disobey Jesus. They're just sitting there in Galilee, not sure what to do, so they just do something. You know, they don't want to just sit there and twiddle their thumbs. They say, let's, let's, we're fishermen. That's what we do for a living. It's not going to hurt anything. Let's go fishing. That's camp one. The other camp is that, no, Peter and, and the disciples are actually deliberately disobeying what Jesus has commanded. Jesus did tell them to go to Galilee, but he said, wait. And Jesus also said back in chapter 16 before his crucifixion that the disciples would be scattered at one point and they would go back to their own, which is a basically a way of saying they'd go back to their way of life. Even in the next section when Jesus is talking to Peter and he says, do you love me more than these? That word these is, doesn't, we don't know what he's pointing to, but he may be pointing to all of the fishing equipment saying, listen, Peter, do you love me more than this way of life? In other words, Peter is, is disobeying, saying, oh, okay, everything great just happened with Jesus rising from the dead, but I'm going back to fishing. What's of note is whichever camp you fall in, the just, Peter's just doing something, the disciples are just doing something for lack of doing nothing, or they're deliberately disobeying, it really brings out the point of the human futility, the human effort alone futility. When you look at the first idea that they just do something for the sake of doing something, practically that made sense, didn't it? They were fishermen. Maybe they needed some money. Maybe they were hungry. So they're, let's go fishing. Just, that's, that's something that they would do. But spiritually, it lacked any direction. It lacked any sort of, of, of forceful direction of, of this is what we are called to go do. Remember what they had just experienced. Pentecost, which is going to come up here, and that's the very beginning of Acts, what we see in Acts chapter 2, takes place within about a month and a half after the resurrection. So this, what we're reading here, takes place within probably a few weeks of Jesus rising from the dead. Jesus, the person they had followed for three years, rises from the dead, sees them on a couple of occasions, gives them specific commands, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you, talks about forgiveness of sins, gives them all of these commands, says, now wait 
The power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. But Peter just, through all that, goes, well, I'll just, let's just get back to fishing. In many ways, what I see in, in life, I can see it in our own lives, is just sitting there, I'm going to go do what I need to do, go get involved in what our culture, our world tells us we need to be involved in. And if some spiritual thing comes along, some, some area where I can get involved makes itself plain to me and doesn't really upset my life, then I'll get involved in it. Spiritual drift is what I call it. We just kind of go along, and if something happens, great. But if not, I'm just going to continue to live my life. There's no focus. There's no direction. We see this. Just let me give you an example in life. When we talk to our kids or our grandkids, our children, we often ask them the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now, what do you want to do when you grow up? And then what we're asking them is, what, what kind of vocation do you think you're going to be involved in? You know, when they're really little, it's a ballerina, an astronaut, a football player, whatever, and that's fine. I mean, that's great, but as they get older, and you really say, hey, this is something you need to think about. I've asked my kids these questions, and as they get older, I'm serious. You've really got to start thinking about this. This is important, and I'm not saying it's not. But we spend all of this time focusing our, our children, what are you going to do for a living, but do we ever ask them this question? Instead of, what are you going to be when you grow up? Who or whom? are you going to be when you grow up? What kind of person? What spiritual things, what, what are you doing in your life, investing in your life right now to become the person that you know God is calling you to be? We spend all this time talking to them about their job. I think of my own life. I mean, when I was in high school, I had no earthly idea what I was going to do. I went to college because that's just what you did. My first major was going to be a writer. After I got my first paper back and it said, see, you should probably see, do something else, you know, to that effect. I was like, all right. And I know psychology for like 20 minutes. And I picked business administration because it was easy. I managed hotels for a while. Then I, I've told you this before. I was thinking about going back to be an architect, maybe owning a laundromat or something like that, or be a pastor. That all happened within like eight years of when it started to when it ended. I think of that with all these things. We ask all these things to our kids. What are you going to be? Probably about 15 different things. But who are you going to be? Who am I going to be when I'm at college or in my first job or as a father? Or when I'm out with my friends? Am I just going along, drifting along? If something that God wants just kind of happens to fall in there, fine. But am I focusing and arranging my life in the word of God and the direction I'm going to say, I'm, I want to be what God has called me to be. Jesus called these disciples to be sent in the same way he was sent. That's the first one. If Peter was just going along, what, now what if Peter deliberately disobeyed? What if he knew that Jesus said, wait, and he said, you know what, I'm not waiting. I'm going to go fishing. Well, I probably don't have to, if I were to survey you and say, is it a bad thing to deliberately disobey God, hopefully you would go, yes. Hopefully I don't need to ask that question. Everybody would say yes. But here's the problem with a lot of our disobedience. When we disobey, we don't do what God has called us to do. Oftentimes we have a very ready-made excuse. Peter could easily say, yeah, Jesus, I, I, I know you told me to wait, but come on, I needed to make some money. I'm going to go fishing. And often, if, if you ever get caught in a sin and somebody asks it about it, we, we, okay, yeah, but, and we have an excuse. One of the great examples of this in the Old Testament is King Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel, right before David, the one that everybody admires. 
And King Saul, he had his ups and downs. And one time he was called by God to go and destroy an entire group of people, the Amalekites, completely wipe them out. Men, women, children, their city, uh, all of their animals, everything, just destroy them. And so he goes and does this, except he doesn't kill the king. He doesn't kill the good stuff, the good animals. In their economy, he saves the money. And Samuel, who God is, is working through and, and is an important figure in Israel at the time, God speaks to him and says, go to Saul. Saul has disobeyed me. You need to confront him. So Samuel shows up in the camp. And as he's walking through the camp and everybody, oh, Samuel's coming. Saul comes out. You know, he's all da, 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 da. And when he sees Samuel, he says, Samuel, it's great to see you here. I'm so glad you're here. We've done everything that God has asked. We've destroyed the Amalekites. And Samuel said, really? Why do I hear sheep? Why do I hear cows? You were supposed to destroy everything. Well, why? You didn't destroy everything. And Saul, what did he do? Did he go, oh, you got me? No, he had an excuse. Well, yes, Samuel, we didn't. We're going to sacrifice these animals to God. That's such a waste to just destroy them. We've got better use for them. We're going to honor God with them. As he's pushed on, we eventually come to the realization he just kept them because, well, he wanted to keep them. But how often can we see ourselves when we do something, we recognize the word of God tells us that's not what you should be doing right now. That's not your focus. We have a ready-made excuse. It's called pragmatism. It's doing what makes sense on paper to us, makes sense to go fishing, but that's not what God wants us to do. Saul did make sense on paper. We have all these wonderful animals. We can have a great sacrifice to honor God, but that's not what God asked him to do. We have those issues in our own lives today as well. As a pastor, I've dealt with many, especially parents, fathers. I spend so much time working, burning the candle at both ends, just working so hard. Is that well, I got to provide for my family. I got to give them everything they could possible: want a bigger house, nicer cars, pay for their college, do all of these things. And yeah, I'm going to be absent from their life. I'm not really going to invest in their life in any sort of spiritual sense. I may drag them along to church once in a while when I go, but I'm doing these things to to do to provide for them. Practically, pragmatically, that makes sense. But is that what God wants? When he says, raise your children in the fear and the discipline of the Lord. As a pastor, you have the temptation sometimes to, to preach what people want to hear. You know, Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, says, the day is going to come where people want their ears tickled. They want teachers. They'll gather teachers that are telling them what they want. And as a pastor, I see many of them. They'll go out there and they'll say what people want to hear to gather bigger and bigger crowds. Practically speaking, isn't that right? We want a bigger and bigger crowd. But that's not what we're called to do. And what happens so often, I see this with many people, on the surface, they look like their lives are great. Nice house, good family, go on vacation, they get to go out to eat a couple times a week, things are good, watching their shows, have their hobbies. But when, and I, I get this sometimes, a little view into a lot of people's lives as a pastor, they just kind of go, but something's missing. Yeah, I know, everybody that looks at my life, they think, it's great but there's an emptiness. I'm not sure what it is. And, and what it's, it's what you see with the disciples here. They're just pursuing something else, and they've, they've, they've set Jesus off to the side. And I would have a tendency to think there's a number of people listening to my voice, whether here or online, that are kind of in that camp. They're, they're pursuing all of the things the world says, but they may have set Jesus off to the side and what he clearly commands them. 
So then we move to verse 4 and we see the second point, and that is the fulfillment then of the combined effort. The fulfillment of the combined effort. Jesus shows up, says, just as as day was breaking, so they have been fishing all night long, all of a sudden there's this figure on the shore. They're about 100 yards off, football field away. And Jesus says, shouts out there to him, children, you don't have any fish. Now that word children seems kind of like a dead giveaway, but think of it more like a coach when he refers to his players as boys. They might all be men, but he's like, boys, let's get out there. You know, he says something to them, gets their attention. And this is a Greek, it's a double negative, so it's almost a, almost a it's, it's asked in such a way as anticipating the answer, no. It's kind of sarcastic. Hey, you ain't got any fish, do you? Which you sure, I'm sure after a whole night of working, like, yeah, thanks, man, appreciate that. No, we don't have any fish. So then he gives them advice. Don't you love it when you, do, you work at something and it doesn't work and somebody who... You don't even know, comes along, let me tell you what you should do. And you're like, mm-hmm, yeah. Try to throw the net on the other side. Now, this is not a boat like a, you know, a cruise ship that's several hundred yards across. It's maybe 15 feet wide. So the idea that there's all night long no fish on this side, but a whole bunch, you know, a stone's throw over here on this side, eh. But they do it. They drop the net and boom, biggest catch of fish they've had in a while. Can't even get the nets in. There's just so many fish. And John, you can imagine, they're all doing all this stuff, and John's kind of looking on on the shore and going, hey, that's Jesus. And Peter, and a lot of this chapter is about Peter. Peter's so overwhelmed. I mean, he's, it's called he's stripped for work. He's, he's down to virtually nothing because it was hot. Throws on a garment because he doesn't want to show up to Jesus with just in, in, that, in his work outfit. So he jumps in the water and he swims to the shore. He's just overcome with what Jesus has done, that Jesus is here. And it's very similar to an account earlier. You see it in Luke chapter 5. There Jesus is in the boat with the disciples when they're fishing. Once again, they didn't catch anything. And Jesus gives them some direction. They try his direction. And this time the boats, it's so heavy it almost sinks the boats. And there Peter's in the boat with Jesus. And so this is going on. Peter looks at Jesus and he says, depart from me, I'm a sinner. He's just so overwhelmed with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And he's so aware of his, his, who he is. He's just overcome with worship. And here he, he swims in. He doesn't give us the great details, but he's so overcome. He's got to jump in the water. It's just Jesus has done this great thing through us by catching fish. And it speaks to us today. How do we, Jesus works through Peter. He works through the disciples to get these fish. How do we get to this experience? We're just so overcome in the presence of Jesus. We're so overwhelmed with what he's doing through us. When was the last time you experienced that where you're just, wow. Well, there's two things, two simple things in this passage. To experience that, that the working of Christ. Number one, we have to listen to him. Hey, have you caught any fish? No. Some strange guy on the shore. Try the other side of the boat. They listen. Now, listening takes effort. List, true listening takes effort. A lot of times, if you ever had this, you're having a conversation with somebody, somebody maybe you really like, maybe you're having a conversation about whatever topic, and as you're talking with them, and you're you're whatever it is you're talking about, you can kind of look in their face, look at their body language. You get the sense that, they're just waiting for you to shut up so they can talk. They're just, mm-hmm, yeah, man, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Or maybe you've been that person. Somebody else is talking, and they're just kind of droning on and on. You're like, I wish they'd hurry up and wrap this up. I got a really good story I'd like to share. It's really appropriate for this month. And sometimes you interrupt each other and just, what's not really taking place there? Listening. Nobody's really trying to hear what the other person has to say. They're getting the very gloss, the very surface of what they're talking about, and then immediately let me chime in with what I think, what my thoughts are. It's one thing to do that in a conversation with people. It's another thing when we do that with the Word of God. For many of us, that's when we read through Scripture, we immediately jump to what's called contextualization. That's when you read a passage of Scripture and you're trying to say, okay, what is this this telling me? What is this explaining to me? How does this apply to me? That's good. You do get there. But often we we just jump past everything to get right to that. And it can lead to all sorts of problems, misinterpreting Scripture, missing the deeper thing. And what we really need to do is let Scripture marinate in our lives. We've had an interesting summer, right? I mean, that's an understatement if there was one. It's been an interesting few months. Lots of things that we normally do this summer that we didn't get to do. That Same with us. So I bought a grill and I bought a smoker. Not smoking, you know, smoker to cook food. And one of the things I've discovered, one of the important things is the importance of marinating, putting things on the meat before you smoke it, and it just takes time. You know, you got to put it on a half an hour, sometimes an hour beforehand. Sometimes when you marinate things, you put it in the fridge overnight. I mean, it has to have time to penetrate the meat, the flavor to get in there, right? No matter how much, if you just throw it on there, well, at the last second before you throw it in, it's not going to have the same flavor. And when our scripture reading becomes something that we do for two minutes and then, okay, yeah, and then we just jump right into how does it, some great illustration in my life and we get on with it, we don't let it penetrate our hearts. So how do you do that? Well, first, you have to try and see the scripture as, as it really happened for the people that were in it. So here in John chapter 21, think of the disciples for just a moment. Put yourself in their shoes. Within last week, you know, you just go back a week ago. Imagine if you had just seen Jesus brutally murdered on a cross. A couple days later, you see him alive. He's talked to you a little bit. He's given you this command to go as he was sent. He's sending you. He's done all of this stuff. Then he's gone again for a few weeks, and then he shows up right here when you're fishing and does this great miracle. And clearly, the disciples, they're, they're, they're coming to terms with, okay, what, now that Jesus rose from the dead, what am I really supposed to be doing? How's my life supposed to be functioning? There's, there's something here that they're trying to figure out about Jesus saying, listen, you didn't catch any fish without me. You listened to me, you caught fish. I told you you're going to be fishers of men. What is, let's read between the lines. And so we read, how does this, this speak to the, the people that were the original, you know, participants. And then the second level is how about the people that originally read this? John wrote this gospel about 40, 50 years after this event. He wrote it to the early church that was under severe persecution. The church was growing, but they didn't have any clout. They weren't, you know, no political power or anything like that. How are they going to continue to function in this society that was increasingly putting more and more pressure on them? How are they going to continue to share the gospel when following Jesus Christ meant you were probably going to get arrested and killed? And they read this and they go, look at what Jesus is doing. After he rose from the dead, he's showing these disciples, listen, I'm still here and there's still great things I can do through you. 
And so as we read these things and we, 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 we ponder and we meditate, we pray, we ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts, we begin to marinate. We listen. Not just read it over real quick and say, okay, you know, Jesus is going to give me what I want if I just... So first, we listen. The second thing is we obey. Very simple, huh? We listen and then we obey. Jesus had cast the net on the right side of the boat. It doesn't make a tremendous... You, probably they're like, really? There's the other... But they do it. They do it. They get something from Jesus that doesn't practically make sense, but it's what he's telling us to do. In James, when James wrote his great book, one of the most memorable passages, he says, do not just be hearers of the word, be doers also. One of the biggest traps we can find, and especially in Western Christianity, is we can be great hearers of the word. We can hear it on a podcast. We can hear it as, a, as we read the Bible. We can hear it from the pastor as he preaches. We can hear it when we sit in a life group and talk about it. We can hear, 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 hear. But do we do? Do we do anything different after we've heard it? I had a, a lady in, in, in a previous place I was serving. Her mother had passed away. This lady had never been married. She was older, you know, 50s, 60s, you know, to not be married, just she was never going to get married. When her mom passed away, it was a very big deal in her life. And she struggled for a little bit, and then one day she, she was a regular, you know, would come to church, she would be there. And she came to me one time and said, listen, I, I want to talk to you, Pastor, which is always a scary thing because I've had some, okay. She said, you know, the next time the church does one of these mission trips, I really want to go. I've always felt that I, I should go on these mission trips. I've really felt God called me to do these things, but I just have never done it. And now I, I think I, I'm going to. It's like, okay, great. You know, that's, that's wonderful. And there was a little bit of time. We did take some other, other trips, but she never went. One of those things as I look is this is somebody who could hear the word. It kept penetrating. It kept, they, they heard it. They knew it. They they knew God, the Holy Spirit was moving in their lives, but instead of the, the, the next step wasn't there. And what we see, this, this fulfillment of the combined effort is Jesus could have caught the fish without the disciples. He could have done everything without it. He doesn't need us for anything, but he chooses to work through us. He chooses to say, listen, you get to participate. We had baptisms last week, and we saw these people being baptized. Every one of them would have a story where somebody else came into their life and did something that led to that moment. God worked through somebody else to get to that moment. We see so many times in our lives God works through us. And like Peter, there's a, that's, that's what leads to worship. When our lives are focused, we're not just drifting along, we're not just doing whatever, not disobeying God, but we're hearing what he has to say, we're doing what he has to say, and we see things change. Which leads to the, the final point, the last little point, the invitation of Jesus to enjoy the results. The invitation of Jesus to enjoy the results. They, verse 9, they get on the land. It doesn't really, I guess Peter gets there about the same time they did or whatever. When they get there, Jesus is he's cooking. You know, he's got the grill going. They eat fish for breakfast. You know, hey, different culture. And maybe you do that. But they got the fish, they got the bread, he's cooking, and they come up and you can almost, he looks up, hey, hey, go get some of that fish you guys got. And Peter, it says Peter, not everybody, but Peter, verse 11, went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of fish, 153 of them. 
And although there were so many, the net was not torn. It's just this great catch. And Peter, it appears by himself, brings the fish in. And, and, and it says in verse 12, Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. He invites them, come, have breakfast. But look at their reaction. None of the disciples dare to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. They knew it was Jesus working, but there was a sense you can almost, it's just dumbfounded. They're like, yeah, here's the, here's the fish. And he's working and doing all of these, these things. And then he does something very interesting in verse 13. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. And so with the fish. In other words, they're just kind of standing there. Finally, he says, listen, it's time for breakfast. Here, let me come to you. Come be with me. Enjoy the fruits of what I've done through you with catching these fish. Now, it's about, yeah, it's fishing, but there's a, a bigger spiritual sense of Jesus saying, listen, as I work in this world through you, let's have communion. Let's have celebration. Let's. You see, I think for some of us, our approach to God, whether we want to admit it or not, is we see God as kind of this overbearing parent that is only ever upset with us because of our failures. A few years ago, there was a term that was described called a tiger mom. The idea was a mother that was so overbearing on her child that whatever the child was doing, there was a sense, you better be absolutely perfect or we're just going to, you know, if you play an instrument, you're going to play that instrument for hours until you're a virtuoso. If you're going to be in some athletic event, you better be the best. Academically, you better be straight A's. Just a constant state of, and for many of the kids, there was a sense of my only point in existing is trying to measure up to this unimaginable demand unachievable demand. And for many of us, our relationship with God is, I, I got to somehow, I got to do all these things to please him, to make him love me. I fail so many times, all he ever sees is my failures. And we forget our failures are the point of why Jesus came. Yeah, you're going to fail. I'm going to fail. We're never going to be perfect. If that was what was demanded of us, we failed. But Jesus came because of that failure. Jesus' death on the cross overcame that. Jesus is what gives us the access to the Father. Yes, we, we pursue righteousness and holiness, but when we don't measure up, he doesn't sit there and go, Murder. he says, you can still come and have breakfast. Yes, you guys did the fishing thing, and you should have, and I'm the one that had to come along, but come. I still love you. You're still my guys. There's a whole, we don't see what happens before we get to next week when he really particularly talks to Peter. He has some specific things for Peter. But I can just imagine what it was like to have breakfast with him that morning. And the encouragement is, as we go through life, we're not just drifting along, we're not disobeying, but we're, we're listening to what Jesus has to tell you. We're obeying what Jesus has to tell you. We're doing the things. There are going to be moments where we see fruit, we see things changing in our life, and he says, let's celebrate. Peter jumped out of the boat, swam to Jesus. Depart from me, I'm a sinner. It's just, I'm overwhelmed with your presence. When was the last time you were overwhelmed with the presence of Jesus in your life? Because, man, you've done great things. I don't deserve them, but thank you so much. I'm just in awe in your presence. This little account of just catching a bunch of fish gives us such a picture of the Christian life, doesn't it? We drift away, we do our own thing. Jesus steps in, listen, follow, obey me. Okay, we do. Wow, look at what Jesus has to do. Not just about fish, but the spiritual growth. And then the fellowship, the joy. It's what that pastor Krumacher said. 
poverty and abundance, failure and success, humility and loftiness, activity and rest, losing and finding the Lord, longing for him and rejoicing in his presence. Only Jesus can do that in a story about catching fish. I want you to bow your heads this morning. I shared just a, a few moments ago that for many people, when I, I talk to them, they have the trappings. When people look at their life from the outside, just a superficial level, it looks very successful. Like they should be happy, should be satisfied, life should be good. But many of the people I talk to, they say, Pastor, there's still just an emptiness. And for so many of them, I think it's just almost what you see with the disciples here. They're just kind of drifting along. Their, their focus in life is on some sort of world-promised happiness that... Maybe they've even achieved by the world's standards, but there's still something missing because they're not focused on what Jesus Christ is calling them to do in their life. They're, whether it's uh, missions or whether it's just certain habits that need to change in the way they live their life, the way they relate to their spouse, the way they raise their children, the way they are involved in their church, they know there's just been things they've, that, that, that have marinated in their life. Maybe this is you and you're saying, listen, I need right now to repent to begin to be a, a doer of the word and not just a hearer. I'm going to give you just a few moments of quiet to pray to get some things right with God as you hear this account so that you can move towards that, that life that Jesus has called you to do. Just spend some time examining your life this morning. Fathers, you hear the, the, the inner voices of the people in this room. Lord, it's easy in our, our day in and day out life to just, as Peter, I'm going fishing, I'm going to do whatever. To just get involved in the pursuits that uh, seem to make sense that are just what we do in this world, Lord. And we, we sometimes take our eyes what you've called us to do. We take our eyes off of to being sent in this world to make disciples. So, Lord, this morning, for, for any in this room that just need to hear your voice to call them back into obedience, to call them back to the, the true purpose of their existence, Lord, I pray that they would hear you this morning. Lord, when you gave that command to those disciples, it didn't make sense. Try the other side of the boat, but they listened. And, Lord, there are many in this room that they know the command that you're giving them may practically not make not much sense. It may not seem to be productive. But, Lord, if that's what you've called them to do, I ask that they would listen, they would do it, and they would be obedient. Lord, for all of us, I pray this morning that you would allow us to just enjoy your presence, to worship you, to say you are a good, loving God who cares for us, who died on the cross for us, who works in our lives to see your purposes achieved. Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, I thank you that you caused John to write down this little experience they had some morning fishing. Lord, I pray that it would change our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you all. Have a good day.